smart thing and have a quick word of prayer. Heavenly Father, it is good to be here this morning, good to see the smiling faces, Lord, and uh, just thankful, thankful for the time to be here. And Lord, I know there's a lot of sickness going around the community and in the body. A lot of families couldn't make it with us. Just be with them. We just want to pray for health and healing, Lord, and we lift this up in your name. Amen. Romans 5. Now, we're continuing our study here through the book of Romans, and I generally every week when we get started, I like to go back and do just a little bit of a review, just in case there may be new people visiting that haven't been with us, and we're starting right in the middle of Romans, or we may have missed a couple weeks, etc. So we like to go back and do just a little bit of a review for what we're going through. With that being said, jump back, if you will, real quick to Romans 1. You know, every week when we teach, I try to find the main passage that we want to focus on. And I just want to go back and share with you how we got to where we're at today. Because I think Romans is one of the most logical books in the Bible. And when I say that, that doesn't take away anything from it being spirit-led. But you can just see how Paul, through the Spirit, builds this wonderful argument. If you remember correctly, all the way back with our first study here in the book of Romans, we focused on verses 16 and 17 of Romans 1. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And we introduced ourselves to this term gospel, which means good news, and how everything in the book of Romans focuses around this term gospel. The word gospel is used more in the book of Romans than any other book in the Bible. The whole point is the good news of Jesus Christ. Well, then we build on this point, and if you will jump ahead there to uh, verse 20 of same chapter, chapter 1. It says, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuse. So we're introduced to the gospel. And then what happens in verse 20, we're introduced to the concept of a God uses creation as his greatest witnessing tool. Remember, if you look throughout the Bible, you and I are never asked to prove that God exists. God says, I will take care of proving I exist. He goes, you just need to look out the window and see creation and know that there's something bigger than you out there. Well, the problem was creation became perverted of sin. Look at verses 24 and 25 of chapter 1. That was our next point. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanliness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor the bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. And so what happened then through the rest of chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3, Paul's whole point is just as creation has fallen under sin, we're all sinners too, which then took us to verse 23 of Romans 3. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. But then in chapter 4, we were introduced to Abraham. And even though now we're all sinners, we can still be saved. Look at verse 3 of chapter 4. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Paul uses the example of Abraham to say even though we're all sinners, we're all under sin, we still can be saved through faith and grace. And that's the important point here. With that being said, it takes us now to chapter 20, chapter 5. Now, we did the first five verses last week because we talked about Abraham a little bit more and about the trials and tribulations he went through. For 25 years, they waited for God to move in their lives to produce the promised child of Isaac. We talked about how there's trials and tribulations in our lives. And sometimes, let's be honest, God's not moving quick enough. Well, Abraham was a good example of faith. And so we left off last week with trials and tribulations. And so now we're going to pick it up here in verse 6. This brings it all together. And really, chapter 5 is the last chapter in this discussion on grace and faith, etc. Because chapter 6 changes tunes here a little bit. So with that introduction, now we have verse 6, chapter 5. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's a powerful verse, people. We were still without strength in due time. Christ died for the ungodly. Depending on your translation, instead of strength, it may say utterly helpless. It may say powerless. 
the point is there was absolutely nothing you had that you could do to earn or merit salvation. Nothing. There's absolutely nothing. You were without strength. I was without strength. We are utterly helpless. We are totally powerless when it comes to trying to see ourselves get saved. Now, keep your hand here because we're going to come back. But turn, if you will, with me to Isaiah 64. We need to build on this. Isaiah 64. We've talked about this the last few weeks, how we talk about this concept of that there's nothing in us. See, the problem is we sometimes think there's something good in us. Well, God saved me. Why? Well, God saved me because he knew that he could use me to reach Northwest Ohio for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, there's many other people he could use. He didn't need you. God saved me because he knew the talents and abilities that I bring to, to music and to ministry. There's six billion people in the world. There's somebody that can sing and play better than you. God saved me because he knew the heart I have for children. I really could serve back there in the classroom. No. There is nothing redeemable in you or me. We were utterly helpless. We were powerless. We had no strength. That's what makes it. See, if there was something in us that was quote-unquote savable, well, then we did something. We've earned it. There's nothing. Look here at Isaiah 64. Let's go ahead and start with uh, verse, verse 5. It says, You meet him who rejoices and does righteousness. See, that's me. I do righteousness. Righteousness means right living. Who remembers you in your ways. That's me, Lord. I'm trying to remember you. I'm trying to live for you. You are indeed angry, for we have sinned. And these ways we continue, we need to be saved. And some of you may stop and say, okay, God, this isn't fair. If I'm being righteous in my living, and I'm trying to acknowledge you in all the ways that I live, why are you still angry with me in verse 5? I don't like that. I'm trying to be a good person. I'm trying to be a moral person. I'm trying to live righteously. I'm trying to live right. But yet the board says in verse 5, you're angry with me because I'm a sinner. Why is that? Because look at verse 6. But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are like filthy rags. See, what I consider righteous, God considers a filthy rag. What I consider moral and good, God still sees sin. So when I present my case to God of why I'm a good person, a righteous person, a moral person, and all the things I've done, what I think are righteous good things, God looks at me and says, that's still filthy rags to me because I'm not perfect. I'm a sinner. Romans 3.23, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.10, there is no one who does good. No, not one. So what this passage is telling me, what I consider righteous, what I consider good, God says is still an unclean, filthy rag. What am I supposed to do with this? Well, let's read on, verse, verse to verse 6. Who all fade as a leaf, all our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. There's no one who calls on your name, who stirs himself up to take hold of you. You have hidden your face from us and consumed us because of our iniquities. Hey, this is tough. Okay, God, you, you say I'm a sinner. You, you say that I have no strength. I'm utterly helpless and powerless. Everything I think I do that is good is actually not good. It's, un, it's filthy rags. How in the world am I supposed to take care of this problem? How am I supposed to deal with this? Stay in Isaiah. We're actually going to go to Isaiah 55 here in a second. So keep your hand in Isaiah, but jump back with me to Romans 6. Because we've got to build on this. We understand what it means to say now that we have no strength in Romans 5, verse 6. And let's keep our mind here, because look at the next one. In due time, Christ died. So that's the answer. I am completely, utterly helpless. I'm completely powerless. And, and what I think is right, good, and moral, what I think is righteous, is actually a filthy rag because I can't earn salvation. So the answer is found that Christ died for us. Did you catch this phrase, in due time? God's time frame is a whole lot different than my time frame. Do you realize from the time Adam and Eve sinned, to the time that Jesus came, 4,000 years passed. And it's been 2,000 years since the time Jesus died to where we are now. Now just think about this for a second from Adam and Eve's perspective. You're living in the Garden of Eden. Amazing, spectacular. You can't imagine anything better than that. Life is literally perfect. Okay. 
you sin, you're kicked out of the garden. But there's this promise. Your descendants, your son, shall fix this sin problem. And as he fixes this sin problem, we can restore and make everything right and everything good. Okay, there's a hope, there's a promise there. This is good. So what happens is you, find, you have Seth. And so you have Seth, and you're like, okay, Seth is going is to is be the savior. It's going to take care of this. No, Seth doesn't. We know from the rest of the scriptures though, that Adam and Eve had many other kids, so you keep thinking, okay, this boy, this boy is finally going to be the one that fixes it. He doesn't. Okay, well, now my kids are starting to have kids, so now my grandkids, they're going to be the ones that fix this sin problem. Because God promised, he promised that our descendant will fix this sin problem. We can make everything right. So what happens is your kids don't fix it, your grandkids don't fix it, your great-grandkids don't fix it, your great-great-grandkids don't fix it, and it just keeps going and going and going. Next thing you know, 4,000 years pass. That's what God says when he says, in due time. I don't know about you. That's not in due time for me. You know, it's one of those things where if we ask the kids to go do something at home, Say, hey, guys, you need to go pick up your room. The understanding, the expectation is you stop what you're doing now and you go pick up your room. Not in 4,000 years you don't go pick up your room. So what happens is God's time frame is different than our time frame. Okay, that's a pretty simple, straightforward point, right? Yeah. Okay, not until you have to live it. Keep your hand in Romans 6. Now let's go to that passage in Isaiah 55 I wanted you to take a look at. Isaiah 55, verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Verse 7 of Isaiah 55. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, for we have mercy on him and to our God. He will abundantly pardon him. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. See, what God considered in due time is not what I consider in due time. My thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways. Have you ever had an experience like this in your life? I sure have. I've shared with you before that Dawn and I clung to this verse years ago when we were having some problems with kids. And this is the verse we clung to saying, okay, Lord, we don't get this. We don't understand this. And let's be blunt. We don't like this. But our thoughts are not your thoughts. Our ways are not your ways. We have to trust you. So think about this now. You've been praying about stuff. You've been seeking the Lord. And, and you feel like the Lord's going to move. This marriage that's a wreck is now going to be fixed. You really feel like the Lord's going to move in your, in your spouse's life. You, there's problems with your kids, your grandkids. And you really feel like the Lord's going to move and do this. You know, there's problems at work. There's problems at church. There's problems at home. Fill in the blank. You're facing stress and burden. You're like, okay, I really feel like the Lord's going to move. And he's going to move in due time. Except you go home and your spouse is still the same. Your kids are still the same. The same problems. And you go to work tomorrow and your burden's still the same at work. Lord, what are you doing? Why aren't you moving? Why aren't you working? This time frame is different than your time frame. He thought it was a good time to wait 4,000 years to bring the Savior into the world. And after the Savior came, he thought it was another good 2,000 plus years now before Christ has returned. Go back and reread the New Testament. Read the book of Acts. Read the Gospels. What did the New Testament writers think? They thought Jesus was going to return any time in their lifetime. Six, excuse me, 2,000 years later, he still hasn't returned. Now, we know the Bible says that that's not God not fulfilling his promises. It's a bigger time frame that we know that. But the point is, there's sometimes in our life where we say, Lord, why aren't you moving? I have been praying about this. I've been burdened by this. I've been, I've been crying over this. And why aren't you moving, Lord? My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. Come on. Anybody that's ever had children, you know, you know, your kids have a different mindset than you. You see the big picture, you know the big picture. And yet you sometimes have to say no to ice cream for breakfast. You sometimes have to say bed is 9 o'clock, not 11 o'clock. And you have to explain to them that money doesn't grow in trees. Why? Because you see the big picture. Now, let's be honest. Sometimes we're a spiritual two-year-old to God. Lord, I want this job and I want it now. God says no. And we throw a spiritual hissy fit. We whine, we complain, we cry. And, and the way we get back at God is, I find I'm just, I'm just not going to read or pray or go to church anymore. It's like the kid holding his breath. 
Come on. That's what we do. Or you know what? He's just not moving quick enough. Lord, I prayed, I prayed, I prayed, I prayed. Why aren't you? We have to trust that he knows the big picture and that he's moving even when we don't see him. The book of Habakkuk, which is one of those books that you really don't spend enough time in, and it's really a great book. Habakkuk is all about God moving and working even when you don't see him. He's out there. He's moving. So when you see that little phrase there in Romans 5 of in due time Christ died, his due time was 4,000 years, but it was the right time for him to die. Jump back now to Romans 5. We've explained what it means that we were without strength. We explained what it means for there to be in due time. Now look at the last one here. He died for the ungodly. Some of your translations say sinners. If you're making a spiritual resume of the things that you're good at, the only thing you can put down is you're good at being ungodly. That's the only thing that we have to bring to the table. We are sinners. Once again, it goes back to that point we said earlier. Well, no, wait a second, James. I'm really good at, once again, worship, working with kids, serving, etc. No, you are ungodly. I am ungodly. Your righteousness is like filthy rags. My righteousness is like filthy rags. We are totally depraved. There is nothing good in us, because if there was something good in us, we would then have a reason for Jesus to say, I died for you because you brought something to the table that I either wanted or needed. No. This is Paul's point. We have no strength. We're utterly helpless. We're powerless, and we are ungodly. So now that we are completely knocked down to nothing, he then can drop this on us, verse 7. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, here's the point. If there was something in us, it makes sense. Jesus died for me because he wanted to use me to do this. No. He died for me when I had nothing to bring. Take verse 8 and put your name in there. God demonstrates his own love towards James and that while we, James was still sinners, Christ died for him. That makes perfect sense now. There's nothing good. You go back to verse 7. A righteous man, one will die. A lot of us out here would give our lives for our kids, for our family, for our siblings maybe, for our spouse. I don't know. We would, we would give up our life. Maybe we'd give our life up here for, for a quote-unquote good person, a, a, a close friend, someone that we work with, that there's a situation popping up. Okay, what about for the worst person you can ever imagine? List every sin that you despise and hate and put that on some person. Would you die for them? Of course not. Jesus did. Pick the name of someone you can't stand. Now, the only name I could think of, I don't think we have a Fred that comes out here to church. So if someone visiting, his name is Fred, I apologize. So I'm using the word Fred, verse 8. Fred is the horrible sinner I have imagined. God demonstrates his own love towards Fred and that while Fred was still a sinner, Christ died for him. That person you can't stand, Jesus died for him. But go one step further. When you put Fred's name in in verse 8, and you put James's name in in verse 8, what does that also show? We're equal sinners. No. Have you met Fred? <laughs> Fred and me are not equal sinners. No. Fred's ungodly. I'm ungodly. Fred has no strength. I have no strength. This is the problem that we do. Jesus died for me because I was nice and good and helpful. He died for Fred because he had to. No. Fred's a sinner, I'm a sinner, Fred's ungodly, I'm ungodly, we're all in the same boat of sin. There is no difference when it comes to that. And if you've missed some of these earlier teachings of, no, 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 there's different levels of sin, then you, I want you to go back and get some of those teachings where we made the case, as I should say, Paul made the case, sin is sin. Now, there may be different levels of sin in the world we live in that carry different punishments in the world we live in, but in the eyes of God, a sin is a sin is a sin, and we explain that to spiritually. We're all ungodly, and Jesus died for all of us, all ungodly people. There's nothing that we can do that helps him out. We like to think we can, but it's not. You know, I got four boys at home, 
And so what happens is when I'm trying to do a project, i got four little people that always want to help me out. I mean, they always, and they just want to be with Dad. They just want to help me out. And, and to be honest with you, sometimes it, it's, it's tough. You're doing a project, and it's like, okay, guys, I'm sorry you can't help me out here because this is not safe, and I don't want something to fall on you or whatever like that. Or, you know, guys, okay, this is, Daddy's got to use tools with this, and I don't want you guys to be around. The thing is, they really think they're helping. <laughs> they really think they're helping. If, I, if they say, Dad, you need any tools? Yeah, I'll probably need some tools with this. Next thing you know, I'm getting Fisher-Price hammers and screwdrivers and pliers. No, I, I know you think you're helping, but, but you're really not. And actually, sometimes the best thing you could do is just, just really get out of my way. problem is, if you say that, i got four little boys that are crushed. See, the same thing happens spiritually. I, I don't help God. I think I do. Wow, Lord, look what I did. Sometimes God just says, yep, yep. And really what God's thinking is, James, just get out of the way, please. It would go so much better. But that's the beauty of the Lord. Even though I am powerless and I'm utterly helpless and I'm ungodly, through Christ... He lets me be a part of this. Isn't that amazing? Just like me as the father to my boys, I let them be a part of it. To be quite honest, I find something for them to do. Just like the Lord says, okay, James, I'll let you be the pastor. I don't really need you. In fact, it's my Holy Spirit doing all the work. In fact, it's me leading and guiding, and it's me doing the blessing, but I'll let you get up there and just talk about me. Thanks, Dad. You know, it's that type of mindset. And this is what Paul is trying to say here. When you have this mindset, instead of actually sitting there, see, this is what happens. You're going to go to either two trains of thought on this. Train of thought of A is saying, okay, this is what you're telling me. You're telling me that, verse 6, I have no strength, I'm utterly helpless, I'm powerless, and that I'm a completely ungodly person that brings nothing to the body of Christ and all this other type of stuff. Yes, that's point A. Now, some of you are going to take that point point. you're going to say, that really makes me mad. Now, the rest of us are going to look at it from a different perspective saying, wow, I have no burden on my shoulders. This church does not live off my shoulders. My kids' salvation does not live off my shoulders. My wife's walk with Christ does not live off my shoulders. Why? Because I'm an ungodly, completely, utterly helpless, powerless person. The only thing I can do is point people towards Jesus Christ. And when you have that mindset, instead of me getting angry about being powerless and ungodly and I can't do anything and all, wow, freedom. I'm just going to point you towards Jesus. I'm just going to simply teach the word simply. It's going to pray with you if you're hurt. If you need counsel, I'll go to the scriptures and say this is what the Bible says. How simple is that? Because when you look at it from this perspective, well, I am the ungodly person. Once I get saved and born again in Jesus Christ, check this out. My father is now God the Father. My brother is now Jesus Christ. And so therefore now also the Bible says I am spiritually married to Jesus. So now I'm an ungodly, spiritually helpless person. But now once I'm part of the family in Jesus, i got a pretty good dad i got a brother, i got a great spouse. From that perspective, why am I carrying any burden on my shoulders in any way whatsoever? Just as my kids, when they're overwhelmed, I hope they come to me. I woke up this morning, and it was a little after 6, and I couldn't get back to sleep. You know why? For the first time since I can remember, no little person came into my room to either A, have to go to the bathroom, see a monster, have a scary dream, or I don't know, fill in the blank. So I thought, this is wonderful, because I've uh, that rest. And now... I don't say that to complain. My point is, when my kids have a problem, what do they do? They run to dad. They don't carry that burden. They run to dad. So why is it us as adults, because we're really smart now and mature, why do we carry burdens at work? Why not run to your father? Why not run to your brother? Some of you may have a great relationship with your family. Others you may not, so this analogy may not work for you. But for you that have a great relationship with your family, I bet you at 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the morning, you wouldn't have a problem calling your mom or dad about anything. You wouldn't have a problem calling your brother about anything. Hopefully you wouldn't have a problem contacting your spouse at any time of the day saying, I need help. 
Same thing spiritually. You have a heavenly father, you have a brother in Jesus, and you also have a spouse. Why do we not take their burdens to them? 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. Why does he care for us? Because I am utterly helpless, ungodly. And verse 8, God still loves me. So therefore, I give it all to him. Now, let's move on with this. Because if God loved us that much while we were the sinners, imagine now that we're part of the family. Verse 9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For even if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Fancy words there. Let's just break them down real quick. Justified just means to be made right. So if you've been justified, it means you've been made right. Some pastors have said justified, just as if I've never sinned. Made right. Reconciliation is a fancy word that just means to make peace. So what it's saying here in verses 9 through 11, very simply put, look at verse 10. I was the enemy of God because I was an ungodly sinner, verse 10. I've now been reconciled to God. I've made peace now with God through the death of his son. And I've now been reconciled. We're saved by his life. I now have peace. And so therefore, jump back to verse 9, I'm justified by his blood. And so since that's the point, what it's trying to say here is if while enemies... God loved us that much. Imagine now that we're part of the family. Now, I'm not hinting and implying in any way whatsoever that now that you're born again and saved, that you don't sin. Wait till next week, Romans 6. Because Romans 6 deals with the concept of, okay, now that I'm born again and saved and I'm saved in Christ, why do I still do the things that are wrong? That's what Romans 6 gets into. But the point that Paul is making here in Romans 5 is that an enemy of God, he loved me enough to save me. Now that I'm part of the family, imagine the blessings of it now. You're in. You're part of the family. God is your father. Jesus is your brother. And Jesus is your spouse. It's an amazing, amazing thing when you stop and you look at it. How can this happen? How is this concept? I mean, this is just such a simple fix. How did this even happen? Verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sin. Verse 12 is vital. This is why. Because for five and a half chapters, Paul has been trying to tell us, you're a sinner, I'm a sinner, we're only saved by faith. But here's the problem. He never went back and told us why we are sinners. He just said, you're a sinner. Anytime someone comes into my office for any type of counseling, be it marriage counseling, whatever, I stop and say, so what's going on? Usually someone starts out, I'm really mad and upset. Why are you really mad and upset? Well, he won't pick his socks up. Okay, you did not come into my office because he won't pick his socks up. Okay, I know that. So what is, let's get down, I always say, let's get down to the root of the problem. Not talk about these little offshoots of a bigger problem. Let's get down to the root of the problem. What is really going on? Well, verse 12 is the root of the problem. One man, Adam, brought sin into the world, and since he brought sin into the world, now we all die. That's the problem. There's your root. It's all Adam's fault. His fault. He sinned. Sin came into the world. Death came through sin. I heard a pastor say one time, he goes, heart disease doesn't kill you. He goes, lung disease doesn't kill you. Cancer doesn't kill you. He goes, sin kills you. The rest of those things just speed up the process. You will die. I will die because of sin. Sin came into the world. Therefore, death comes. People ask me, why are there hurricanes? Why are there earthquakes? Why are there tornadoes? Because we live in a fallen, cursed world. So therefore, death comes through sin. This is not the way God originally planned. We're supposed to still be in the Garden of Eden. But through one man, verse 12, sin entered world. That's what's going on. Now, before we sit here and pick on Adam too much, because it would be really easy just to blame him. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. Why am I a sinner? Well, the first thing is you're a sinner by genealogy. Adam is your great, 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 whatever. He sinned, and so therefore it passed through generations. I'm a sinner. Let's go back one step further. My boys are sinners. I'm a sinner. My dad was a sinner. My grandfather was a sinner. My great-grandfather was a sinner. You can go all the way back. I inherited 
sin. That's in the Irvin bloodline. We're sinners. And you know what? When my boys get older, if they're blessed to get married and have kids, their kids will be sinners. They inherited it. Now, let's just pretend for one moment that that wasn't quote-unquote true. Well, guess what? When you're born, you're born into sin. Wow, now that's the one I got a problem with. But wait a second. The world is a sinful place, right? As soon as you enter this world, you enter the world of sin. You're born a sinner. Now, I've had people every now and then come up to me and say, well, I find it really hard to believe that little babies are sinners. Now, generally, they don't have kids when they say that. Because if you have kids, you know that little kids are sinners. You know that. I am not going to sit up here in any way whatsoever and talk about how blameless and righteous and justified my kids are. My kids are ungodly sinners. And they need Jesus Christ just like everybody else. Now, you sit there and moan. Come on, your kids were sinners too. The point is, we're all sinners. Everybody does something wrong. So let's just pretend that that one's not true. So let's just pretend that we didn't inherit sin. Let's just pretend we weren't born into sin. The last one, you're a sinner by choice. You have chosen to sin in your life. Now, if you still want to sit here this morning and say, I haven't sinned, then you just did because you're a liar. The point is, you have inherited sin, you've been born into sin, and you're a sinner by choice. We are all sinners. Every single one of us. All of us. And I've used this example many times before, but sin is actually an archery term, and it just literally means to miss the mark. So therefore, if you miss the mark by an inch, or you miss the mark by ten foot, an archery term, you've sinned. So it doesn't matter how far you miss the mark, you've missed it. So I'm a sinner by genealogy, I'm a sinner by choice, I'm a sinner by birth. Verse 12, death then comes through sin. Now, the key to this, though, is jumping ahead. Jump ahead to verses 18 and 19 in Romans 5. Because now let's give the answer. Verse 18 says, Therefore, as through one man's offense, Adam, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, Jesus, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. So just as Adam messed it up for all of us, Jesus fixed it for all of us. Verse 19, For as by one man's disobedience, Adam, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, Jesus, many will be made righteous. That's the point. Paul has spent five chapters here to make this point. We're all sinners, but it can be fixed through Jesus Christ. That's the point he's trying to make. We're all sinners, but it's fixed through Christ. If you walk out of this building today not knowing that you're a sinner, then I didn't do my job. I know that's not the greatest way to make the church grow. What'd you learn? I learned I'm a sinner. But that's the point. Now, we also have to understand this. So look at verse 20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but this is the key. But where sin abounded, Grace abounded much more. So if you remember two points today, point one, you're a sinner. Point two, Jesus can take care of that for you. That's a package deal. That's what Paul has been trying to spend five chapters telling us. You're a sinner, but it can be fixed through grace. We're going through uh, Revelation on Wednesday nights. One of the things we always say in Revelation is wherever there is judgment, there's always grace. When you look in the book of Revelation, it's a tough book to chew on. But God is constantly giving the world times to repent and change. Same thing here with Romans. This is a tough point. Okay, we're all sinners. Great. Thanks for encouraging me today. But grace, verse 20. Oh, my goodness. I don't care what baggage you brought in this morning. I don't care what things you have done that's come in this morning. It's all covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the grace concept. That's the love of God concept. That goes back to Romans 5, verse 8. God demonstrates his own love towards you. Fill in your name. That while you, fill in your name, were a sinner, Christ died for you. He didn't wait for you to get cleaned up. He didn't wait for you to get your life in order. He says, you're utterly helpless, ungodly, and I still love you and I'll still die for you. There's this horrible point that comes into our mind. It's a lie from the pit of hell that we have to clean ourselves up spiritually to present ourselves to God. God says there's no way we can clean ourselves up. It all comes down to his love. Jump back now, if you will, verse 15. Let's compare Adam and Jesus here for a few verses. Verse 15, but the free gift is not like the offense. 
For if by one man's offense, Adam, many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. What did Adam bring to us? Death. What did Jesus bring to us according to verse 15? Life. Next one, verse 16. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, Adam, for the judgment which came from one offense, Adam, resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. Jesus. Justification. Just as if I've never sinned to be made right. See, what Adam brought us was death. What Adam brought us, verse 16, was condemnation. How many times have you heard this? Why well, can't go to church? Why? You know what I'm doing. You know how I'm living. You know how I act. Yeah, that's why you need to come to church. I tell you right now, if as a church we ever get some way where we can't allow sinners in, we become the most hypocritical church you can ever imagine. This is why we're here. We're here to let the, 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 the people in because that's us. That's us. That We are sinners. We are ungodly. And, and people have come here this morning. People have come here in the past and people will come here in the future where you know what? Their lives don't quote-unquote match up with the Scriptures. Well, you know why? They're sinners. Just like your life didn't match up with the Scriptures at one point. Just like, let's just be totally honest, sometimes your life right now doesn't match up with the Scriptures. That's what Romans 6 is about. Because every now and then I get someone comes up to me after church like, okay, Pastor, I love the grace thing, I love the forgiveness thing, I love all that, but you still got to remind them they need to live a moral life. Romans 6, yes. Live a nice godly life. We'll get to that in Romans 6. I promise you, it's coming up. But the point right now is, Adam brings death, Jesus brings life. Adam brings condemnation, Jesus brings justification. And then verse 17, For if by one man's offense, Adam, death reigned through the one, much more those who received abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Adam brings reigning of death. There is no hope in Adam. The only hope you have in Adam is you live the best life you can down here, and then you stand before God. And guess what happens when you stand before God? You're condemned, verse 16. Over the years, I've been involved with a lot of court cases out here at church. And I've had to go support people that have uh, had to go stand before the judge. And, and one of the deepest pit, sick-feeling stomachs I, I, I ever imagined is, is when I'm sitting there in the court, and I have an emotional attachment to this person that is sitting on the right side facing the judge. And this person's life literally is in this judge's hands. And you're sitting there, and this person may be right, wrong, or indifferent, but you have an emotional attachment to this person, and you realize that there's a judge, through his one word, can either change this person's life towards freedom or change this person's life towards condemnation. That's a sick feeling. You just sit there just waiting to see what this judge is going to say. Well, same thing spiritually. If you want to go out on your own, go out on your own. You will get a shot. You will get to stand before God on your own. And I tell you, there's going to be a sick feeling in your stomach when you stand before God, and he'll give you a shot. What it comes down to is, if you choose to reject Jesus, it means you're accepting Adam. And by accepting Adam, you're accepting death, you're accepting condemnation, and you're accepting that death reigns forever in your life through hell. That's why you want Christ. Because through Christ you have life, through Christ you have justification, just as if I'd never sinned, and through Christ you have life reigning forever and ever. Through Christ you have, verse 20, grace abounding much more. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Isn't grace a beautiful thing? This is what Paul is trying to tell us through these first five chapters. We're all sinners, but this sin problem can be fixed through one man, Jesus Christ. I love that. So what it comes down to is this. Very simply, straightforwardly put, do you have that? Do you have that? I wasn't planning on finishing with this, but the truth of the matter is once we got done reading the scriptures, this is the best thing to finish with. Is if, Do you have it? I think of that passage where it says, today is the day of salvation. I mean, what good does it do for us to sit here and talk about grace and love and forgiveness and all that other type of stuff, and then I stand back there at the double door, shake your hand, and say, thanks for coming. So if you don't have this, today is the day to stop and say, do I want this? 
And if you want this, I wasn't planning on this, but I'll be up here at the front during the final song here. If you want this, while Marv's doing the final song, Marv closes out with prayer, you just come up and I'll pray with you. I'll pray with you right now, and let's talk about grace abounding more. Because that's more important than anything that's going on today for you right now. Maybe you know what you're supposed to be doing, and your life isn't in line with the scriptures, and you know that. Don't wait for Romans 6 next week, okay? <laughs> let's come up and let's pray about this today. Come on up, and I'll be up here, and we can pray with you during the final song. And if you can't catch me during the final song, I'll be around here. I'll stick around. I'll say that. So I won't be in the back to shake your hands. I hate doing that, because I love getting a chance to shake everybody's hand. I love